Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today's Boothcast is brought to you by Starboard Sup um, and I have the chief innovator of Starboard Sup, Sven Rasmussen, on, online. Thanks, Sven, for joining in. Hey, Michael. Thank you so much for your invite. This is uh, super exciting stuff. Yeah, it's been really cool to talk to so many people over the past few weeks and um, I'm really enjoying having so many cool conversations. So for you, I'd like to find out a little bit about your background and, and where you grew up and, and how you found that love for the ocean and the passion for uh, windsurfing and ultimately all sorts of different paddle sports. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like uh, when, when you look back, you start to realize there is a pattern, there are systems, there are synergies and uh, Somehow I ended up being born in this little town called Arendal in the south of Norway. It's, it's a very, very nice place. So lucky house close to the ocean there, just a hundred meters walk. So, so, you know, I was always out there somehow in the water. But uh, then when I was about 12, 13, maybe even earlier, maybe 11, I can't quite recall, my father gave me a, um, a National Geographic Kids Edition. And in there, there was a of, uh, of Matt Schweitzer. He is the father, actually, of St. Schweitzer. He and uh, a young pretty lady called Susie Svartik, they were out there cruising windsurfing on the lake. And when I saw this photo, I'd never seen anybody windsurfing before. This kind of transformed my mind into suddenly, and I knew what I would love. It was like, this was so far beyond what I could think of being the best thing you could do. So I was just kind of sitting, thinking about that for years. And then um, what happened was that my, my sister somehow uh, was hanging out with Knut to then uh, happen to start a little water sports school called Waterfront. And they, uh, they invited me to come and have a little lesson. And so that lesson was amazing. It took me about an hour to get a huge rig out of the water. And I was, I must have about 30 kilos at the time, so I was pretty tough. And however, that stuff, you know, just, that was what I wanted to do. So, you know, the first time you kind of, you hold that boom in your hand and you go forward and you look back and you kind of see them moving forward, you see the bubbles in the water, then, then, uh, then you know, that, that was all I wanted to do. So, so then I wanted to be serious about this. I, I went then to get my job, you know, delivering newspapers every morning. On the most rainy days, my, my mother actually would do it for me. But yeah. on the long days, I, I can't get it done right. Yeah. And uh, after a year, we saved up, got a used board, and uh, I just nuts. I'd, I'd spend, uh, like, I'd go out seven, eight in the morning, be back when the sun is setting in Norway. That's quite late. Uh, that was what I did. Rick, Rick sack and out there windsurfing. So when I look back, I say, how, how is this possible? But, you know, I start to realize that, you know, we all have different uh, sort of, uh, let's call it, uh, things we want to do at certain times. Yeah, I passions. Wasn't, yeah, passions. At, at that time, I wasn't so much into the normal kind of kids kind of talking, running around and doing funny stuff. I just wanted to be out on the water carefully, you know, just up and down around the islands. And that's what I enjoyed. I, I was just there. Now, uh, Scary, you know, you had like um, you had this winter coming, and you know, winter wasn't gonna stop us, ice wasn't gonna stop us. It was you, you would walk out on the ice, 
until the water was there, jump in, and, and what you had was like a, a long jump, you know, just a long jump, and the water put, what am I saying, green fruit jacket and some boots. So, so sometimes police would call, uh, committed siren, you know, like this. Yeah, the siren, yeah. 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 What are you doing, you crazy person? Yeah, yeah, so that, that was that, and I think that kind of showcases I think retrospectively how, how insane my mind works. I, I get very passionate about stuff. I, I don't quite understand why others can see the same thing that I see and can feel the same passion. And, uh, and I have to apologize to my mother for being such a, a careless person, but she's right here, so that's okay. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, so, so that, that was the first step. That was kind of getting into it in the very beginning. And when you got into the sport, did you did it just take control? Because you're speaking about you're so passionate about windsurfing that you basically just put everything else on the back burner. You didn't really want to to go too much to school or to study, or you just wanted to be a windsurfer and you wanted to follow that. Is that how the, the did you just start travelling around after you first started windsurfing? I, I guess it's the same with all of us. You like the water. You know, you are out there spending all your time in the water, and I mean anybody that enjoys water you know if they had a choice being on the water or, or sitting at school you know there, it, it's not such a hard decision to be made so i do remember that during school days that i would just not be there and i will tell teachers i was sick or something like this you know i just couldn't make it that they would tell me but they'll see you instantly through the windows at school so i have to kind of you know have to kind of go along with the basic lines because i wanted to have freedom to travel but I soon figured out that this was something one could actually take internationally. We want to travel to places windsurfing. And it was just when windsurfing kind of started the heat up. So most of the events, so I tried to make arrangements at school where I could spend about 50% of my time at school and the other 50% I could travel. And uh, then we made exams accordingly. So we, we kind of worked really nicely with the community at school to, to, to plan the, the, the whole season. And again, I have to thank the school for being so welcome. That, that was pretty amazing. Oh, then they'll give us right on. Yeah, okay. no. Um, <laughs> it's really fun to look back and think about this. It's a bit crazy. I don't know if you're allowed to do this, but I mean, I'm not. But yeah. what happened was that there were events everywhere. Every little island in the Caribbean would have something, you know, all around Europe. It was like full on. There were events. And, uh, I think in the worst season, which would be my best, I maybe do like 30 events spread around. And uh, it was like uh, just amazing to kind of say, I want to go here, I want to go there, and there happened to be these competitions there. You could, you could basically see the world, experience all the cultures, just like you do now, but on a more frequent basis, it was just so much happening. And uh, that was, uh, I don't like, I, I could see in the beginning of paddleboarding that it started to become like this, but this kind of just expanded so way out of control that, uh, you know, we just got stuck there for, uh, I think, wow, it must have been like 15 years there, and there was no time to do more school and stuff like this. We just had to kind of go and do what felt right at the time. Uh, yeah, so yeah. For, for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. For, so you basically were following it around and you were so passionate about windsurfing that you're going to 30 countries a year and you were able to see the world. Um, did, did you actually, I know you won a few titles and I know 83 world championships before the, the LA Olympics in 84 was your big moment. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm a competitive person, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. So uh, always wanted to kind of be in the mix there. And, uh, you know, it was all the national stuff. Then was all the European stuff. So I would probably win some of the European championships. And then, and then you know, uh, we were leading them up to, to, to a potential uh, inclusion of windsurfing in the Olympic Games. So then it actually happened. Uh, I think in 81, it was uh, made clear that a board called the Wing Glider was going to be a board for the 84 Olympics in LA. And so uh, there were grants coming out, so you know, we could get some support. And uh, I was doing a lot of events. I, I tried to compete uh, with the, in the competition where the best riders towards the Olympics would be. And then we had one particular event which was exciting. It was about half a year before the Olympics. We had the World Championships in, uh, in Barbados. And uh, that was really a fun place. Great winds, nice water and all that. And I, for some reason, I had, his, had an exceptional board speed uh, those years. But they never won design classes, so it didn't really matter what you were on. It just mattered how you could handle that stuff. And uh, it was amazing board speed. I could just go through the feet quite easily. But I was also very light, so when the wind was strong, I, I, I couldn't hold on with the same speed. So in that particular event, we had the favorite for the Olympic Games, Stefan Tannenberg, and me, we were kind of fighting throughout. I'd be leading through the event, but at the very last, at the very last event, at the very, the very last race, at that time, um, I was ahead, wind picked up, and whoever would be winning that last race would be the winner of the championships. So, so you know, we, we crossed the line and I couldn't, I couldn't see it was, I was tired, you know, these, these lines are pretty long in windsurfing. So he, uh, Stefan, you know, he was sure had won, so he was happy celebrating. And I was super excited because I was second in the world championship, so I was celebrating with him, right? But then in, in, in the evening, we looked at the, 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 the scores coming up and, and actually it had, been a, it had been a photo finish. We ended in the same, uh, we went over the line at the same time, right? So therefore I became the world champion. And I was just like, it was very special. So that was, uh, that was a moment uh, of a big surprise. And uh, yeah, good stuff. And did you, did you, was that your only world title? And was that, in, what class of um, windsurfing was that in? This, uh, this was what they call the Mistral class at the time. It was maybe one of the most competitive classes. It was Wingrad and Mistral. They did two competitive ones. Previously, it was a class called the windsurfer class. They uh, migrated to these two. And then there were the different friendboard classes. Uh, I probably won uh, uh, two, three of those and some other stuff. But it's, uh, I, I wasn't really, when, when we came to the professional scene and you could choose all kind of different gear, somehow you needed to be quite large and you needed to have the best gear. And I didn't get that together so well. So I would be have for the next 10 years. I would have been a few, but. I would be in the mix somewhere, you know, five, ten, or whatever have you. Different disciplines, wave riding, racing, and all that stuff. But uh, just... when, when, when you look back, it was just a fun time. You could do whatever you wanted out there. You know, we were just playing around for 15 years, traveling. It, what can you ask for? Yeah, and you did that. So basically, from the age of 15 to the age of 30, you were just competitive windsurfing. You were traveling around. You were doing 30 events a year. And you basically would have had like a traveling family, essentially similar to what I have now when I'm traveling and there's so many different people. 
did you have a really supportive network around you that allowed you to do that as a, as a youngster and, and going through your 20s? Yeah, I mean, the people around me, I, 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 when, when I look back and see everybody that ganged up to help in any way possible, you know, whatever you travel, there will always be a family to let you in. And there were people that, you know, I wasn't really a skid sailor because I went straight into windsurfing. So people would write me letters and teach me tactics and techniques of how to get it right. And uh, people invite me to come for uh, training camps with them. And uh, whatever it was, uh, communities would gather up. They would help to find uh, friends for me to travel here and there. It, it was like, uh, I, I, yeah, it, it's hard to describe all the forthcomingness of people near and, uh, and, and far away that was supportive. I think you, 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 you see the same when you travel. It's like, you know, people just want to help you because you're a great guy. And then, you know, just enjoy all that. So when, when, when then one looks back and I was always wanting to see how can I repay all that? Well, I can't repay it to those people, but the house is always open here. So if, if somebody drops by Bangkok, they have a place to stay. That, that's the way I, one can see the, the bigger picture in it. And you're always trying to pay it forward and, and sort of give back. And I guess in a way, that's what I'm hoping to get to at some point when I finish my racing and I'll be able to do these types of things and be able to give back some more. But yeah, it is amazing community, obviously in windsurfing and in stand-up and in all ocean sports. We just have so many great people that we can reach out to. But what I did want to ask is, what was the, what was the thing about windsurfing that made you want to be so competitive? Like, why, like, were you always competitive as a child? Like, did you always want to win? Did you always want to be the best because I know even with Starboard now as a business, like you're constantly trying to innovate, you're constantly trying to be the best and stay ahead. Was that something that was instilled in you as a youngster? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm quite useless and not talented at anything. I just had to work hard and figure out how, how can I make some sense out of me being around? And I work hard at it. So, um, so when I was a kid, I was involved in a lot of different sports. I tried to find out in, in what sports could I actually somehow uh, play the game. And uh, you know, the, any, any, any Norwegian sport, you know, all this cross-country downhill slalom and all that stuff. And all the team sports, you know, anything from soccer to volleyball and what have you. And what I really enjoyed was actually like uh, sports karate. I took that maybe a little bit too far. So I used to train, but I was performing so I used to train like five hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> Love to be out there, you know, big kids and little me just trying to fight around. <laughs> I was great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then uh, yeah, other parts. But yeah, I, I just uh, somehow uh, want to make the best out of what one can be. Just again, like any paddler or a sports person, you just want to be the best you can. And I think that transfer to wherever you are, of course, this is, this is also a problem because, you know, you, 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 are, you are probably seen as a little bit of a weirdo focusing so hard on certain topics. You don't have the same social spectrum as others may have because you, you just want to really do some good stuff. Oh, absolutely. Like you've got to be all that, all that focus, determination and that persistence. And obviously you had that just as a, a young kid, obviously doing your karate and then obviously moving into windsurfing, you just spent every single hour that you had on it. And a, and a theme I think is coming through in a lot of these boothcasts is that people are, are kind of obsessed with what they want to achieve and they're very passionate about 
their obsession and and that's how they get good at things like they don't just get good at things because it just falls on their lap and and they all of a sudden they're a superstar it's just those years and years of hard work and and that those amount of hours that you're spending being able to work on the things that you're trying to achieve is is something quite incredible and what 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 obviously inspires me about you is you've taken your passion as a youngster to um to be moving forward into sport but then now into business as well I read something that you turned 30 and you decided that um, the, the boards and that that you were racing on were too narrow, too um, unuser friendly, and, and not as much, not as many people could get involved in windsurfing, and that's why you started, in a way, starboards up or starboard windsurf at the time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, I guess it was a fear on the one side. You know, I, I didn't really go to school, so. One had a lot of experience, however, from, from those people you met and all the products. You know, when, when you travel from here to there, you know exactly what it is. Everything is a product. You learn and you move on. It's a product-based kind of school, you could argue. And, and then what, what we could see is that when I wanted to sell my old gear to whoever, I couldn't understand how I could use this just because it was just, it was so narrow, it was so long, and you know, it was just not user-friendly. So they wanted it, but I thought that's almost wrong to sell this stuff. And then, uh, and, and, and then we started to think around and uh, saw that there, were, uh, there could be another future for that sport. It was going down pretty quick. We just had to find something that made it more easy to, to learn on and that you could also get training with and you could also race on. So I think we, we, we managed to change, at least for a while, a part of the destiny of inserting. We, we, we managed to get stuff made that actually was more uh, enjoyable and more easy for people to, to get started with. It also helped, I think, the, the whole competitive scene as we could have more events happening as we could be playing in, in, in lighter conditions. So, yeah, and, but here, here, here came, uh, what, what we did was just to listen to people and, 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 and connect with people that are much better than us. So there were a few people, um, it was Jamie Lieber, a British uh, bloke who, who really could see this thing about wide and long, uh, wide, wide and short. And then it was Jim Drake. Uh, Jim Drake, he is an amazing guy. So he, he invented windsurfing. And he actually also invented wingboarding, something that became popular, I guess, last year. He invented that in 1982. It just didn't quite catch on. Now it catches on. And everybody says, Jim Drake, <laughs> 24 yeah. years. Yeah. And then, and, and then also this Jim Drake, uh, who, who stayed a couple of years with us here in, in Thailand with his wife, um, he also actually invented a plane called the X-15, which is, it was the quickest manned airplane uh, to take flight in 1967. The funny thing is that I think the Scramjet didn't beat it. I think he still holds the world record for, uh, for manned flight. So you know okay. what a man. Yeah. We were able to work with a guy like that. Incredible, <laughs> eh? Yeah. So, and, and these, these people pour in from different places, give ideas, and we work it out. And much like you, you come in and says, you have to do this, you have to do that, and then we go and try it, and it works. So, I guess that's, that's what we are. We are just a medium where ideas come, and we try to make them into reality. Yeah, and, and you're, the, the brand of Starboard is all about innovation and quality, and I think that's something that you've really focused on over time. And... But also, you've you basically started Starboard almost by yourself. I know um, Clement's dad, John Louis Thomas, was involved with you at the start yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
when, when so, you, did you start in the Cobra factory? Was that, was that in the smoke yeah. or something I read? You can give some background. So Jean-Louis Colmar, he is a shaper and racer and teacher from New Caledonia up there in the Pacific. It's a fantastic island. Have you been there, New Caledonia? I have been lucky enough. I actually stayed with um, Noe Garoid and his family uh, for three nights. Yeah, it was really cool. Like back when I first started paddling a stuff in 2014, it was a great trip. I didn't get to see much of the island, but I'd love to go back. It's so close to Australia. That's an amazing place. I, I, I love totally New Caledonia and uh, we always have a strong connections with the island. So, so then I, I usually spend a lot of time there. And uh, Jean-Louis, he was then developing some boards that were extraordinary fast. I saw him in the World Cups. He was a small guy, he was even smaller than me, but he could still be extraordinary fast. So I tried his kit and it was working well. He had, a, he had something called the root technology, root laminates, second bottom on the boards. So, so that's cool. We can actually make the boards uh, stiffer, lighter, stronger than before. Shapes are good. So uh, he came to Thailand and helped me to uh, put together a collection to get it with a few other people. And then uh, I was sitting here. Uh, wow. In the, there was at the factory, this Cobra factory that makes boards for many brands these days. At the time, it was not a big factory. It was a kind of small one. And, and uh, they had a fax machine. Now, those days we didn't have internet, so it was a fax machine. And that was that fax machine was in the smoking room, and so I was able to sit in the smoking room and I could do some faxing from there. So that's what I had, and um, and I shared a room with five other guys, one room five guys. Uh, actually, well, that's not true. There were four guys and one girl who was married to one of the guys. Yeah. So you can imagine that was was very small. Yeah. And uh, best time of my life. Yes, a lot of fun. So that's how we got started, and then, uh, and then again, it was just a lot, of, a lot of hard work. We failed over and over again, but so many people kind of came with the ideas and we moved on. So uh, that was, uh, it, you know, it was, it was actually mission impossible. People told us we will just fail. It was a time where, you know, I was working with many big companies, maybe owned by large corporations, and you kind of had to have a pretty large budget to enter the market, different to today. So we were kind of doomed. But from my first sales trip to Germany, I was just all saying, uh, you can go home now because I'm lasting the planet. This is another visiting world brand. Yeah. So I said, thank you very much. So that was good, but that, that, that's kind of a message, I think, to all of us is that when people, and I think that's also ingrained when people tell us that, you know, we can't do it, that's when we fire up. I think that starts when you're three, four, five years older. That is, says, can't do this, then we want to do this, right? I oh, guess that's, <laughs> that, that's something that fires me up. I love reading or seeing or hearing somebody tell me that I can't do something and it just makes me want to do it. And then when I achieve it, it's just nobody else knows about that. That was what motivated me, but it gets me across the line. It gets me to go, gets wake up, I get to that session. And yeah, you're drawing your motivation from so many different areas. Um, what what were the main motivators for you when you were starting Starboard? Like why why did you spend so much time and effort trying to create a brand when everything was against you? I mean, I have to say not everything was against. When people were pro us, friends, you know, all, all this is was just a was just a complicated business landscape, and you know you kind of land in a country where you didn't really you didn't really have anything there before, so it was a bit foreign and strange to be the only guy. But then the network started to build up quite quick and you, you, you created the friendships and the partnerships and move forward. And 
I can't say how or why. It's just like it just happened, and uh, it was like I, I remember. I, I, I am a bit different. I listen sometimes to people who can see things that the rest of us cannot see, and uh, and uh, should not see. But then they're kind of telling me the distance approximately here. And when I can see the snippets of, of what they're saying, it's true, then I believe that the rest also is true. So it seemed to be that somehow it would work out. So we were hanging, clinging on to the, as far as the seers idea that this actually would come out pretty cool. And uh, I think that's what we still do. We kind of see, like these days, that business isn't quite so everything is shut, you know, and things are already very complicated before. But you just know that out there, a little bit to the side, it's a very bright, nice future. And that's what you see. And the, the, the rest is just, you know, waking up in the morning and enjoying that you actually are able to wake up in the morning and all these beautiful people around you. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we have to remind ourselves that we are so lucky to get like this time. Imagine if you landed, whatever, we like 7,000 years ago, just 100 years ago. Now is the prime time to be here. So every day is just such a golden moment. You know, keep remembering this, and uh, and nothing really uh, can stop us. Yeah, no, I can completely agree. And obviously, there are tough times for a lot of people at the moment during this COVID nineteen crisis. Like a lot of businesses are hurting. I'm sure. I know Starboard. Like obviously, a lot of sales are probably not going to happen. Summers are getting cancelled everywhere. So board sales are probably going to hurt. Like. Athletes can't race. I mean, There's a whole lot of different stuff going on. It's just a really different time. It's super complicated. That, that's why I can be cancer. I'm so lucky because even though how it is now, we are enjoying. The only yes. problem that, of course, we are we are reading the international news and we we see the horrific situations in New York and and all the, all the struggles around, and I can imagine all the communication, the families that are, 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 are losing their members, it's like complete disaster. Uh, however, it's, uh, it's something we need to just cope with positively. It's the only thing we can do, so that, that, that's what we do. We look, at, we look at the bright side of everything because anything else doesn't really help. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. And I think I've, I've really tried to work hard on myself for the past month or six weeks, I think, since I actually left Thailand and was over there testing boards for the next range. And obviously, as an athlete, it was a bit hard to go, OK, so now I might not race this year. I've got no goals. I've got no plans because everything's been shut down for me. But what I've really admired about you always is that you've always seen the big picture. And that's not even just for now. It's like when you're looking at um, the work that you've done with Starboard Blue, you're always trying to, to help the environment. You're, you're trying to reduce the CO2 emissions. You're kind of carbon neutral positive with Starboard. There's all these different things that you're actually doing outside of the business that you're actually working on. You're actually trying to help educate others and be a leader to support the future generations. Like I read something that you're talking about. I want to make sure that the next generation, uh, like with my daughter, Maya, that is going to be better than what I had for myself. Where does that come from? Yeah, so I, I think I feel pretty guilty. You know, we are one of the larger producers of water sports gear, and uh, altogether, you know, that isn't really better for the planet. So, so I just have to do something about that. And if you drill down to all the corners of our company and those working there, you know, it's like it's not really good. And uh, I take that personally, and I want for everybody in the company and and our customers and everybody to understand that we 
we cannot tolerate the way people run businesses. We can't tolerate the way Starbucks used to run a business. We have to see, can we find new and better ways to do it? Can we balance what we do? And can we, over, can we go beyond balancing? And can we somehow even be a, uh, create a blueprint of how we can do that? So that's kind of our mission because obviously our company is very small. So we are agile. We can change the quick. And if you succeed, maybe in a two, three, four years, if you succeed in some of the things we are doing, then we can maybe share that with other larger players. And then we can have some impact. So we are there's some guinea pigs trying the best we can do. And uh, somehow being useful in the big sphere of, uh, of what's happening out there. Yeah, it's always been inspiring for me because it's something that I probably wouldn't have thought about if I wasn't a part of Starboard and on the team. And it's been a really cool learning experience for myself. But so you started very small. You had um, a few employees. Have you got any employees that were there with you at the start 27 years ago that are still with you today? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. We had uh, Joe, our COO. He came in within the first year and uh, we have to do the closest in the operation still. And we have not to, has been helping out in all directions since then, she is here. And yet I think uh, all, all, all the poor people that come on board, the ones that we get productive with and can, can, uh, can move forward with, they can are still here. It'd be like Tiesta is in charge of our windsurfing arrangement. He, he came on board when he was an intern back in 2000, I think it was. He's still here, that's 20 years ago, so yeah. It, it seems to be that, but there are also people who depart. And uh, it's like, it's depending on how, I think what happens is that if we feel that people really, really, really want to, to move forward, if they have the passion to get the job done and we can see us in the dark direction and we stay on board, there are other people who probably would want to leave because they may not have the energy to keep up with what they're doing. And we have to thank them for the time they managed to hang around there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, yeah. um, a very full, a full on environment. I know when I get to Starboard in Thailand, I'm just like, okay, we're on, we're doing stuff. And we're constantly doing stuff. I know I come over for maybe a 10 day period and we're uh, in the workshop and then we're on the water in the lake and then we get in the car and we drive the potato down for one night. We're back the next day. We go to a photo shoot. We're doing all sorts of these talks. So it's, it's all, it's on sort of all the time. And, I just see the passion and I sort of want to be involved in it when I'm there because it's just sort of um, something that is just all encompassing and it's really, the energy is electric, I think. And that's something that I try and emulate when I'm back at home and trying to follow my own passions and dreams and trying to really push things forward. And um, I know that you have so many things going on at the time. You've obviously got windsurfing and SUP and um, obviously family life. How do you, um, manage that work-life balance because there's obviously a lot of things going on I know you're normally getting on a plane every second day and there's like just yeah so much going on how do you manage that probably quite poorly but uh, yeah uh, I mean it is like this you know uh, I have a very understanding wife and, and uh, my daughter you know the good thing is that they are, they are, they're just living up, across the lake so you know we, we, we walk there in a couple of minutes or so like this morning having to work so we are, they're close in that way so I can run back for lunch if I want and uh, and uh, I try to spend the evenings with them as I, as I can so I think that's coming along quite all right the socials outside of that 
uh, isn't much. It's like family and then the weekends down at uh, the beach testing with the crew or, or, or what have you. So I, I try to focus on, on what is important, you know, that family or, or friends that come in from abroad to spend time with them. I haven't, I haven't built up a big circle in Thailand that I need to kind of accommodate for. So not so social in that respect. We try to at least look after those who are, are really uh, around you. And uh, same thing at the, at the office, you know, we try to spend time within the different divisions. Like right now, it's a wingboarding division, which is very exciting. And we, we also have our, our division in Cape Town that makes Irish kites and in Perth that, as you know, makes a brand sales. So we, we try to find a way to connect them. Some of these divisions are really running well on their own. So, you know, you just get small reports and it's smooth. Others you need to engage more with. Uh, and often one engages maybe a little bit too much actually on the on paddleboarding race program because you know only it's just so ingrained in this and particularly when you guys are coming out and it's like that's that's really super exciting yeah. and uh, up and down and, and taking all that out but uh, every weekend and sometimes midweek you you get down to the beach and you're trying something new. It's like this Christmas over all the time. It's like every weekend it's a new Christmas, new wingboard, new paddleboard, new windsurfing board, new something. So, so that's 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 kind of it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm I must be 56 or 57 years old now, and I've got new toys all the time. How is this possible? <laughs> yeah, you must have that opportunity. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's all. Really good fun to be to be allowed to to uh, to hang and, and and see this this industry continuing. You know, it's like new aspects all the time. But there was there was, there was one thing that actually um, could be could be fun to share. You know, here at the lake, it must have been in uh, approximately 1999. I saw somebody paddleboarding at the lake. 1999, you know, I, I had I didn't. Maybe Lord Hamilton was out of paddleboarding, very possible, but you know, I didn't follow it carefully. So I asked this guy, you know, what are you doing out there? Why are you standing on this boat paddling around? And he said, you know, oh, it's just great. Uh, I can see the nature, it's a new angle for to sit in a kayak. I can, kind of, I can see more direct to nature, I can see down at the fish, and you know, it, it just feels good to stand. And uh, I said, didn't think much about it more, but the, this guy happened to have been my father. So, you know, he kind of found paddleboarding there, you know, long before I knew that what was going on. And yeah, that was wow. right at our little lake here. So, what I want to say is that sometimes things are so much in your front, in your face, but you don't get it. And that very happens when people are close to you, you may not take it on board. If there's some other superhero, if Michael Bruce comes into town and showcases everybody, okay, we see it. But often those closest to us kind of have something in them that we may not pick it up. So yeah, that was very peculiar. Oh, wow. So, but then you saw your dad paddle in 1999 on, I assume, a windsurf board and paddling around on the lake. Then you didn't, but you didn't start Star Wars up until 2006? Yes, yeah, so what happened was that we were in a, we were looking for a light wind windsurfing way, you know, a way people could go out and enjoy windsurfing when the wind was too light. And so we heard that uh, in Hawaii, 
um, they were developing uh, a way where they were putting windsurfing rigs on the longboards, longboard surfboards. And uh, there was then uh, a friend of mine um, uh, that was having a brand called the Hot Says Maui. And uh, I wanted to go out and understand this with him because he was making this sales. He had some boards sitting there. And uh, he brought the windsurfing on his longboards. I really liked it. And then he said, you know, try to throw the rig away and we will try this thing called paddleboarding. And so we did that. And, you know, that, that was really tough because these boards were like 26 inch wide longboards. You know, yeah. that's not really the best thing to start paddleboarding in, in the waves, right? Yeah. But I, I read it. But so I, I, that was fun and I thought, okay, fine. One can probably then go home and, uh, and you know, explore that further. And that time we also met up with Mark Rothhorst, uh, who is he's the head designer at SIC. And he already started to produce. So we collaborated there for a while and had a few years when we did stuff together. And Mark is such a super guy, so that went really well. And... Uh, and then I think when I came home to Thailand, this is the first board and paddle around. Then, you know, within the first day, in my brain, this would be the favorite people, people, uh, favorite way for people to play in the water. I wanted to see that this will become the, the most exciting uh, water sport in the future. So just took that little thing where you brought it back to a normal environment, flat water, you know, on a lake or something that you can see if you spread. To, to anywhere, and uh, and then uh, then it was all happening. So, yeah, five yeah, six so years too late. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how you, as you say, there's things in front of you that you you don't think is going to happen. I know I had that same experience with um, foiling when I saw it for the first time. I was like, oh, I just looks so hard. Like I can't do that. Like all these incredible athletes are doing it, and I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it. And then. I went foiling for the first time. I started downwinding and, and surfing and it just was like, wow, like this is a whole new perspective on the ocean. And it's something that I guess I've always prided myself on is being able to step between different water sports and being able to be relatively good at them. And it's just such a cool experience to have a new one. Like obviously you're saying you're at 57 and you're still seeing new toys come out and you get to go play every weekend down at the beach. And you're just like that oozing that passion and innovation that Starboard represents. Now with Starboard, how did you come up with the name and the brand, and why did you um, sort of take it in the direction that you have? Yeah, uh, I guess at that time there wasn't really a clear vision on it. It was just more like a uh, like a path that was started. And I, I remember uh, must have been in around '93 uh, in Hawaii, maybe Maui had to go up with a name and you know I, I have always been intrigued by all the stars trying to make some sense out of all this stuff and I believe that we are kind of part of all everything and all the influences coming from wherever and so I was studying of course I studied a lot of astronomy and I tried to see what's going on and then, uh, then I looked at the meaning of all the basic stars I see could one of the stars be a name for this brand you know and then figured out that that's that's possible, but none of them really have everything together. So it just became star. So the, the, the first uh, range was just called star. So that was kind of what I saw. And then, uh, you know, you sometimes have to put one and one together to get two. So that was board, star board. And, uh, and then at that time, obviously, they were talking windsurfing. And 
just port on the starboard. So that kind of gives you the right away. And uh, that came together nicely. So, so that kind of was the evolution there. And then uh, Jean-Louis Colmaster from Caledonia, he, his shaping logo was the Tiki. And uh, then uh, the Tiki was always on the boards in a small format as his shaping logo. But you think that this, this Tiki, you know, he, he has a lot of mysterious ways. So when you start to read up on ancient history, how people may have migrated, may have migrated from uh, uh, South America towards the Polynesian Islands. You know, some did do that. Some crazy people like Tor Heyerdahl would try to, you know, prove that. And we loved that idea. And uh, there was this Contiki uh, Vichara who actually brought these people to some of these islands. And that's a part of the story. So we just love to explore that. And we love to think that maybe there's a chance that actually the South Americans introduced surfing to the Polynesians. The Hawaiians listening to this will disagree, but it's just a fun story. And uh, then we look at how he became, Tiki became like a god for his people. He was the god of wind and waves. And then you're just seeing how that came up with Shambu having that as a shaping logo. And then later on, actually this is too funny. It probably still sits here, I have to show you this. For some reason, yeah. This here, that was stuck on my desk for about 15 years. Yeah. So this, it was stuck here. And, and, I, I and I didn't really realize it was there. It was just sitting there so I could kind of, I could balance the, 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 the table where I have my computer. And so then we come back to sustainability in, so this was for Heidel, right? Yeah. And the continuing the expedition. And then suddenly comes his son, Bjorn Heidel, walking into the office. And, and certainly we are in a mangrove park in Myanmar, the Haira mangrove park. So, you know, all this mystery out there, uh, maybe may, may by the time I'm uh, going into my grave, I more start to understand how that came together. But yeah. very mysterious. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big circle here, which uh, will be a fun to follow the next uh, 30, 40 years to see where does all this go. Yeah, it's um, it's quite incredible. I know you were telling me a lot about the constellations and what's it all mean and how I should go and read up about it. I remember driving back with you from, um, I think we did a clean up down, I'm not sure, in, in the south somewhere. And we're driving right. back and I was asking you these questions. And yeah, it was just amazing because I always thought obviously Starboard was bought in Starboard and then you gave me the story about the constellations and how you'd read about them. And it was just yeah, an amazing story for me because I just didn't didn't see it that way. But when, so when someone, when someone buys a starboard, they're buying into the brand, the values, like the different story and the exploration. Is, is that something that you're trying to get out there to people when they, when they are getting a board? Like you want them to understand that they're buying into more than just a, a piece of foam and, and fiberglass? I mean, as, as the story evolves, that's the only thing that actually is important. We now are transferring our, uh, I think our works, just to see how can we be a tool to help change, help to explore new ways uh, to do stuff so we can kind of sustain as a species. I guess that's really what it's all about. And we need to share that with uh, customers so they, they understand what they're a part of. Obviously over the years, uh, <laughs> the three, four, five years, all our uh, sort of income has gone straight back to develop environmental projects. So basically you buy straight in to do that. 
And that's what we want to do. We want to basically have the environmental part as the reason why the brand is there. We, we, are, we are just the vehicles for an environmental sort of movement to accelerate a little bit. And of yeah. course, some people think we are mad, but I, I, I think everybody else that thinks that must be completely crazy. So that's how it is. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit strange, but time will probably tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a cool thing to be a part of. And I know you've expanded a few different things and you're creating new ranges and new boards. And there's probably no one out there who has more boards or windsurf boards and starboard. Um, you have different parts of your range. And I know there's like obviously beginner boards, like you got the intermediate boards, the racing boards or the racing windsurfs. Um, and you, obviously when you started the brand back in, in 93, you wanted people to be able to experience windsurfing at the time and now stand up from all walks of life. How, how, important, how, how important is that and how much is your thought process going into that when you're making those boards and you're making those decisions on, on what boards you should be bringing into the market? Right. So, you know, for us, the single most important part is to have the best entry-level care because what we want to see is people start stepping on the board. If it's a paddle board or a board or, or a pipe or what have you, the important part is to enjoy the first time on board because if they enjoy that, they will probably pick that sport up. So that's, I think, is, is the most uh, significant theme is to make sure we have something good. And if, if you look in, in windsurfing, it was the go board. Coming to paddleboarding, I think maybe the whopper. That was kind of what managed. It, it helped any reasonable person to get into a way. Before that, boards were 30-31, where boards were 30-31 wide. And uh, suddenly we come up with something that was 34 plus. So it gave people ability to go out and experience wave riding, even though they weren't that talented or that trained. So that was very important. Now we have the go boards for, for paddle boarding that built in a way where you have huge stability through the concave in the middle and through fat rails and they're fast. So we just want for people to experience it the best way when they enter the sport. Uh, then we have methods like you that want to win the world championships. That's when our competitive edge come in and we want to spend a lot of time to make sure that you win. And exactly why we are so interested in that, I mean, that probably just comes back to the DNA, we just want to win. But now you win for us and that's, we take all that pride and all the joy in that. So I guess it's good to be able to mix uh, uh, growing the sport and also leading uh, the way to find how we can just improve the, the performance all the time on, on your level. Uh, then, and then are all these other parts, you know, the, you know, the, the, if it's yoga board or down the river board or, you know, it just went everywhere. It probably went too far in the end, but, uh, but that's how it was. It was like a journey to explore where, how far can you drive paddleboarding into all the different issues. So uh, what we do feel, however, is that if you uh, if you wish to have a paddle board, we, we probably have something for for uh, for any kind of size or style or what it is, and we also try to also try to see how can we have something for the different price segments. But you know, we cannot uh, we cannot be as price competitive as those who sell direct, and that's that's just how it is. So we have to go often through a shop. We think that the shops are the ones that somehow are able to also drive the communities. 
and the communities are important. Uh, so if the shop isn't there, if there's no business for them, then I think the sport will lose out. So it's, it's important for us to be focused on uh, finding ways where uh, we, we, we can maintain the completeness of having the ecosystem of the shops in place. So, and also we have to thank all these uh, amazing retailers. I mean, I mean, many of them started windsurfing in shops 30, 40 years ago. And now maybe the main liability is paddleboarding. So we, we kind of seen how our whole industry has uh, sort of uh, been on a journey together from the early days of windsurfing till now when you have uh, all these toys from, from paddleboarding to, to, to windboarding. It's the same DNA. Uh, factories are often the same. Uh, distributors the same, and uh, and we see also shops the same. So, and we also see many riders uh, coming over. Being maybe you have all the exceptions. You are uh, coming from from paddleboarding. So it's, it's different. Many of the early adapters Surf came from windsurfing. Surf, surf, sorry. Many of the of the early adapters are coming from from windsurfing. Yeah, it would be most of them. So. Yeah, sorry, definitely search me again. I'll be a prime paddleboard if you need. I'm not going to be very good, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but you must have seen so much change in the industry over such a long time. Like, you've been involved, obviously, for nearly, I don't know, 40 years, I guess, since you actually started windsurfing to now when you actually got a, a, quite a, a big uh, industry-leading brand. How has that evolved over time? Did you start with when you started the brand uh, with your friends as being your distributors, as, as people going out to the shops, I know you had still really strong connections from windsurfing from a lot of the people that I spoke to um, who were dealers and distributors of all you right now. Um, how important is those trust structures that you've created over a long period of time to be able to, to sell to so many people and to help people get out onto the water? Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, whatever you, doing life, uh, if it's business or other trust-related uh, interactions, that's what it's all about. Uh, it's about somehow uh, creating these uh, ways where people want to somehow connect with you, maybe trade with you. And uh, I mean, that's like a basis of, of much uh, human effort. So I guess, the fact that I was able to travel around so much over all these years, I, I met a lot of people in the, a particular market which I really enjoyed and I, I, I appreciate much is Japan. So um, I like the culture, I like the, the, the way people are really focused and they're really hardworking. So, so that was the market where we had our first success story. They appreciated that we could make boards that would be a kilo lighter. They understood all the details going into the different constructions. So that was important. And also we had many friends there, so we could build that up. So they kind of, was Japan that carried the grant for the business the first few years. Of course, we built up uh, things in, uh, in Norway, of course. I would have my, some friends from school would, uh, would start with the distributors there. And, uh, as we grew, then uh, you know we would have people reaching out to us. I'd always go to the shows three, four, five a year, and uh, yeah, there would be these trade shows were crazy. I remember one time, I wanted to go to a trade show in Paris, 
So I've been told by one of those people, see the future that you have to go to Paris, it's going to be good. So I said, fine, I'm going to go to Paris. It's like, oh, there's a lot in Paris. <laughs> no. Do you have space for me in nine years, in, in, in nine months when, when, when the show is on? I said, no, it's sold out. I kept on calling them, I kept on using a fax machine in the, in the smoking room, and they just were sold out, they didn't have space. And then in the end, you know, then I called them the day before, and I said, no, there's nothing there. And I said, never mind, I'll come anyway. They had all this gear, you know, loads of, at that time we had just been inventing uh, uh, full wood veneer longboards, and so of course we brought this to the market for anybody else, and thought it was cool. We also had a soft tech horse, you know, out there. You've probably seen them in Europe. And we had a windsurfing horse made in wood. And we had even wakeboards because we actually did like a wakeboarding park here. Yeah. And I packed it all up, had whatever, 25 pieces, took them on my shoulder and went to Paris. And then I knocked on the door at, at the Salon Nautique and I said, do you have any space for me? They said, no, I told you. There's no space for you. I said, I'm here. What am I going to do? Okay. So the show manager brought me in and he said, fine. He knocked on the, the doors of the different exhibitors in the windsurfing hall and asked if there was space for me. Everybody said, no, there's no space here. But he said, well, this method can come all the way from Thailand <laughs> with all that stuff. It's going to help me. So he found me a wall that was the backside of one of the big yachts. I kept yeah. one of the big fish on what they were doing and that was a hallway. So people walked there. So I got like 12 meters where I could show whatever I wanted to. And that was wonderful. That's how we started in France. And that, that kind of indicated that, you know, if you, if you really want to do something like Michael Huth wants to win the World Championships, he just gels it and he can do it. So, mm. But tough, uh, because looking back now, it was just insane. I mean, I don't think I would do it again. But when you, you it was like such a tunnel view, you know, it was like, that's what you want to do. You didn't realize that it's actually mission, mission impossible. Yeah. So. These, these, these things will happen in different places with a set of distribution that you know you trusted people maybe blindly and gave them the options. Other times you just yeah. So you're talking about being super persistent, being determined, like really trying to break down walls. Like obviously, as an athlete, I'm trying to always uh, break down barriers and do things that people always are telling me that I'm not able to do. And you're telling that story of being in Paris and just basically being persistent and just basically I have this goal I'm going to be at this show I'm going to be there and I'm going to bring starboard to, to France um can you continue that story for us yeah yeah so I mean that was that was fantastic and then uh, we created this good alliance with the show ongoing so you know Jim Drake would come in and hold big shows talking about windsurfing gear and uh, and then two years ago we we, we managed to uh, support uh the, the big paddleboarding event there. I think they hold like a thousand people down the river in the morning there. Yeah, the Nautic Crossing. And, uh, the Nautic Crossing. And uh, we supported that uh, as a sponsor, made it then a carbonate positive. And then we came back then last year, which is you know, 2019. And uh, we talked with Alain Pichamar, who is the show manager, and actually he used to also create his indoor windsurfing shows in the past. There in BRC in France, when I was live shows, windsurfing, you know, TV, worldwide. So he kind of figured out that it was cool if he could be the first uh, trade show in the world to be climate positive, including all his visitors. So he made an arrangement, we calculated the footprint of all 200,000 visitors on average. 
and then we planted enough uh, mangroves in our climate park in Myanmar, about a little bit over 24,000 pieces to make up for that impact. And I was kind of giving a little bit back to the show as, you know, they kind of created opportunity for us there or whatever, 25 years ago. And that is fun to see how these relations are following you. And uh, yeah, so thank you Paris for the start there and hopefully uh, we can do something more next year. And then, and then we also got this, um, we got another thing out of Paris. Uh, we managed to also get into the Olympic Games. So we started is now in a way the Olympic class in Paris in windsurfing. It's called IQ foil. So there is a lot of stuff happening that you can see before afterwards. If you try hard and you give back, then you know things are happening. And I really look forward to these 2024 games. Well, I mean, we are also in LA actually in 20. What is that? 2028. So it's <laughs> it's an amazing thing to see Tiki you now suddenly being a local in, in the Olympics, you know, going, 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 going back to the smoking room, you couldn't quite see that in the smoke. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's quite cool to see that you've got that Olympic uh, contract. You've got that class now. I know that you had uh, years ago, I'm not sure if like, there was, a, there was a, a competition between you and maybe Neil Pride to get the Olympic um, spot. So it must have been pretty cool after not getting it that time to, to be able to achieving um, that great success for 2028. Yeah, yeah. So, so at that time we were working hard, but you know, Neil Pride not only built the best company ever, uh, but also the the board of Neil, Neil, Neil Pride. I think also was uh, he also takes care of JP or did take care of JP and also took care of SIC, I believe. I, I think so. So that was a fantastic constellation. He's like our guru out there. But uh, but uh, they had a, a set of their actually that was better than ours. We may not, we didn't know it at the time because we hadn't tested it. We had tested gear gear before with our, the, the big tender, but day one and I was really good. So they kept this moving forward as it was, but this was exactly the right time to make a change. So now windsurfing went from, you know, normal windsurfing up to foiling. So we kind of made a big step this time. So I think it's the first time in Olympic uh, windsurfing that we're actually using relevant gear. So, yeah, that, that's uh, pretty amazing indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. And do you see, do you think stand-up paddling can eventually get to the Olympics or do you think that's a long way off still? We just have to fight, you know. We're really going to fight for this. And we just have to find a way where we can work together a little bit better because, you know, we have a couple of organizations out there with really hardworking people that are quite focused and maybe too focused on the one side. And we need to gather them a little bit and help them to understand that, you know, we just want to go to the Olympics together in one way or another, get shine on the sport and see how collaboration can get us there. So I have big hopes for it, but it could really take for people to understand why they're in charge of these organizations. And in my opinion, that they're for the people that are in the sport and helping to create opportunities for them. And that must shine as the golden light in front of them and everything else must come in the back. So when we're able to get into, to better understand that and maybe work together, we can find some solutions. And you know, it's kind of never too late. Things can happen really fast. I, uh, we, we were sitting in London, we are sitting in London uh, June 2019, so this is not more than nine months ago or something. And, and then at that time, you know, 
it, it was clear that our organization called World Sailing, they take care of everything sailing in the world. Uh, it was pretty clear that uh, it was going to continue, windsurfing was going to continue in the Olympics, but on the current gear then, which was sort of old fashioned compared to foiling. And it, you know, the class lost more and more participation. So it became kind of a, after all these years, I think they've been in the Olympics for 16 years, it, it, there was no more interest. But the membership nations didn't quite understand this. Uh, so they just want to continue. So the odds to actually get foiling into the Olympics, I would rate them as between two and three percent. But we were there with a couple of really engaged crew. There was uh, Antonio Cusolino from New Zealand, and uh, we had some insiders uh, in world sailing that kind of would like to do something. And during that event, we managed to change so we could actually have a tender. We, we could have a, a test, a sea trial. And then it moved on. So going from two, three percent, it started to escalate. And then finally in Bermuda, just like four months later, the decision was, I think, by 70% to go towards foiling. That's how quick the blocks were falling. And I think that's something we can figure out also, not only within, um, not only within our organizations, being the, the ISA and, and, and uh, ICF. ICF, I think we need to also somehow apply a little bit more support from IOC. They need to get more involved. I understand I have a little court over there in, in Switzerland, but you know, we have to be a little bit more engaged and we have to get the riders. I mean, that, that's one of the things I'm burning for is to see how, how can we get the best riders in the world to help to get part of this committee because it's their future we're talking about and they have to be there helping to decide. They're the stakeholders. The, the, the dudes that uh, have a position in the organization need to bring in the stakeholders. And that must happen. And the day we do that, then things will start to follow because they do it. You guys just want to go and paddle in the Olympics. That's what you want to do. And then everything else must fall in line to And then, you know, all, all the politics, you, you almost become shy to talk about your politics because every day you talk politics, you're actually working against the writers. And that must start to shine out. So I think it's important that a guy like our, our, our CEO, Thomas Bach, you know, be great. If he can just take a little bit of interest here to say, fine, I can help him. I can help make this happen a little bit quicker. And you know, so many things are happening. I think Tokyo is, that was like one year later, it's kind of changed. Like we had Tokyo in June, July, 2021, right? We can easily do some stuff for Paris. We can have a wonderful, not, not, not that you may not get a medal, but you get an exhibition. Mm. Why not have an exhibition there? I mean, who's going to say that's a bad idea? It's a wonderful idea. And we have an exhibition in Paris, and then that went really well, and, and then you know, we worked together, and there we are on the line in Los Angeles. Why not do it? I mean, it, it's, it's the most attractive uh, paddle sport on the planet, why, why shouldn't we be represented there? And we know that organizations will create more members when we get into the game. So we, we, we just need to, to, to throw, throw the truth up in uh, the air and let the reality fall down. And yeah, so it, it, it comes to guys like you, Michael, and the other outspoken writers, you know, you almost, maybe you just have to, Take a train there and knock on the doors and say, 
hell to talk to you. Because, yeah. you know, emails and stuff doesn't work so much any longer. Telephones start to get through you. I'm here. We should talk about this. Yeah. The whole, the whole process has been really drawn out, hasn't it? It's just taken too long to get this stuff sorted and, and who owns the sport. Like, who really cares who owns the sport? Let's, let's make sure that the sport is good for the riders, for no, the community, no. for the industry. Like, nobody owns it. Like, let's all just do it together and go forward together. And let's all make this Olympic thing happen. Let's bring more people into our, our awesome sport. And, and that's all I want to see. Like, even if it doesn't happen in my generation, like, it, it'd be great for the, the kids coming through next generation to be able to, to aspire to be able to do that. It's, it's just so important that when we, 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 look at, when we look at the development of the sport, as soon as IRC puts the Olympic stamp on it, all the national bodies are getting support, they're getting monetary support, they're putting training programs. So at that time, the whole, uh, the, the, the recruits to the sport expand so much, there'll be so much more activities immediately. And we need that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think last year, the year before, I, I was trying to be involved somehow, but, you know, it was tough. So I think better for you guys who, who you know, it's your future. And you should go and bang on these doors. You should fight to California. You should go to Germany. You should go to Switzerland with a few people and say, guys, we want to go to the Olympics. Help us. Don't hold us back. That's, but I, I'm a crazy guy, but I, I know that this girl is mad. So I have to do some crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that sort of passion, I hope that a few of the other athletes are out there listening and maybe we can get together and, <laughs> and form something. So we will see if that yeah. will happen. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah. it's exactly what has to happen right now. Like we're yeah. all so passionate about this and all I ever hear at the moment is, oh, the sport's in decline or this is happening or this is yeah. happening. It's like, that's not true. The sport's been around for like maybe 14 years. Like it's such a young sport and there's so many more avenues that can be taken. It can be, um, you can pay a paddle aboard in any part of the world on, on a lake, a river, an ocean, doesn't matter. Like there's always those opportunities for all of us to get out in the ocean. And I just feel like they, they, there's more that can be done and everyone's sort of a bit confused at the moment as to, to where the direction of the sport is going and the direction of the sport should just be going forward. And we should be looking at, going to the Olympics and being a bigger sport and, and taking on big sports around the world, because why not? Yeah, why not? Mm. It's so clear. It's just, uh, yeah, I, let, let, let me not ramble on. I will probably yeah. bore you guys. No, yeah. no, I, I, I love the passion, Sven. You know, we always have our good conversations. We sit at your house and talk for two, three hours on end, and I play chess against Maya, so it's, uh, it's good. But what I wanted to know also is, what where do you like get your motivation from each day like you, you're waking up and you're you're waking up and what what's driving you when you wake up like are you thinking about like the next cool project you're working on are you thinking about managing your staff are you thinking about oh, what the workshop guys are doing are you talking to distributors or are you working with key people in your organization to make sure things are happening like what what do you what, when you wake up like what is your first thing you do and, and what do you what drives you to go through that day because i know you work so hard yeah, it's uh, as you asked the question, but I, I too, uh, hopefully there are not too many people listening, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to tell the truth. All right, so when I wake up in the morning, I, I first of all take some big breaths to just realize that yes, I'm still alive, can I? You know, it's a good sign, and then, uh, and then uh, I try to see different people in my mind and send them some good thoughts. It can be you, it can be people here at uh, the office, it can be friends, it can be 
other people that I'm not friendly with. I want to send them some, some good thoughts, so next time I see them at least, so it's a different, little bit of a different chemistry because that thought was sent. And, uh, and then I will uh, probably uh, do my little, it's not really yoga, it's more like a stretching routine for five, 10 minutes to kind of you know, put your body in there in, uh, in, in good shape. And, uh, and uh, then run down and uh, read the newspaper check some food, wake up my hour, and, uh, and that. So, um, yeah, then coming to the office, super focused on what needs to be done here. I'm a terrible manager, but uh, I have many, many good people around me. It is like some, I often read up on, uh, on what all the great managers are doing and, 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 and what very successful uh, business people are doing and, and successful other people. And what I always learn is that you just gotta have to find people that are much better than you. Somehow attract them to work with you, then motivate them. And this is what this is what I hope to do. But I'm also not very good at it. But that's where I want to get. So that's kind of I think the ideal situation is that you're able to find great people and motivate them, and try to not get too much in their way. I will get in the way if something is like if. If there's a new shape in the board, you will see me coming down and asking questions. I probably shouldn't be there, but it's too exciting not to be there. Yeah. yeah and then it, comes the discussion, of course. Yeah. No, no, you go. No, I thought you were finished. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and then, then, then comes the basic stuff. You know, I have like uh, a piece of paper I will write and stuff like this. I will I'll always repeat what I have to do that day or I put it into my little, little computer. I scan it through and I try to highlight what's most important to do. Yes, I, I should probably get away from the paper and use my screen all the time because I'm wasting a lot of paper. And, uh, and then just find out what's the priorities, what is on the timeline, some things you have to get done in the morning, like today, 1 p.m., you know, we have to make sure that we are sitting in front of the screen together with you. So that's that priority that is on top of my list today. And then we have to do a junior presentation, some new stuff for, uh, for, for, uh, for windsurfing, and then have to sign off the new 4-6 uh, wing foil board that you probably also can use for downwinding. You know, it's, it's a very wide spectrum that actually we are, we are looking at. Maybe it's going cleaning something in the back. I, I like to go out and clean stuff too. You know, it's like I can't handle things I'm messy. So it's a, it, it is not your usual situation. I'm... Uh, I'm a little bit different, uh, I guess. So don't take me as an example of how it should be done. But the example you can take is uh, find some good people and help to figure out ways where they can uh, be the best they can in the organization. What successful people? Sorry. I heard the same. I, I was listening into this absolutely amazing guy called Bill Gates, and he says something similar. So I think I'm right. I'm sure you are, Sam. We're all right in our different ways because at the end of the day, you're a very successful businessman. You have 100 employees. You've built up a business for nearly the last 30 years. You've had great people like myself, because I like to call myself a great person, but um, just coming over and wanting to be part of your brand. Like I, I remember in 2015, I, um, like the brand that I was paddling for, Gulliver Boards, sort of ceased to exist. And Damien gave me your email and I remember trying to sell myself to you because you were the best brand and Starbucks was the best brand and I couldn't see myself anywhere else and that was something that really drove me because I could see all the different things that you and Starboard were doing um, you had great employees you had so many different projects that you were working on and 
um, you just strive to be the best. You strive to be innovating. I remember my first experience down at um, Patea with you and it was down there with Matthew, Ollie, and I'm not sure if it was Connor or not. And we were, we were <laughs> testing the all-stars and I've come to the beach and you're like, what did you feel? And I was like, oh, look, I think it, this needs to be changed. And you got your hacksaw out. <laughs> you started hacksawing the board <laughs> on the beach. And I was like, this guy's crazy. But um, it was, a, it was obviously a, a calculated um, decisions that you make and you've seen so much different um, stuff over time, which has allowed you to make those decisions. Go, yeah, I can do that. Let's just do that now. And there's so much innovation that goes in into the background of Starboard Sup that most people don't see. Like people just see the product on, on the shelf or they see it on the website or they see myself or Connor or Zane or any of these guys racing them, but they don't see the backstory. They don't see the weeks and months of um, R&D and work that goes into the design, like the, the graphics, the um, the marketing team, the all those different people over there sitting right across from you in the office are working so hard to fulfill your passion and, and your dreams. It's just a, quite an incredible organization to be associated with. Yeah, so, so you know, uh, we are really lucky. And, uh, you know, that, that guy, Oli, he is, um, he is a total gem because he loves racing and he totally takes part in everything that happens. Either you are out there on the line or, or, or we are down in the shaping room or, you know, like in fact, you're trying to find out all the laminations or the QCs and what have you. So with, with people like him, you know, it cannot go wrong. And then when we gather the team together, we kind of get it done. I think you can see the same similar thing. Uh, you also have seen with Mathieu Rossier in the past, you know, same thing as well to get it done. And uh, he still comes around with great ideas. So as you know, what comes out in a few years from now, is kind of something he worked on a few years ago. These, the, the group of people still works together, even if they're different products and that. And, uh, and uh, marketing team, as you say, Kung you know, she is a dual directing all of us to, to get this stuff done. And uh, it, it's, we, are, we are really, right now we have this team that it can work together well. And uh, I think somebody told me that, you know, it, it isn't really about having maybe the two, three best guys. It's about having a team that can work together. But we can develop on that because we have the best guys in you guys and we have the team that works together. So therefore we, we have a very strong base right now. So I guess the job is just to try to keep everybody reasonably happy so we can keep that team together for, for, for as long as it is possible. So again, yeah, we are. And what do you look for in those people? Like, how do you go, I'm going to, like, you might probably get like thousands of sponsorships and that over your time, especially in the last like 25, 30 years. How do you um, pick certain people? Like, because I know that people might just come up to you and go, I want to work here. And you go, cool, start. And they start the next day and they're there for five years. How do you know who to select and who you want to have around? Like, what is it? Like, is it something, a gut feeling? Is it, what, what, yeah? It's a big mix. It's a big mix. Sometimes it gets feeling like, sometimes it's random, sometimes it's analyzed. I mean, we have been running anything from deep psychoanalysis to someone just sending a mail and I liked what they were saying and then put it on the spot. So I guess it's like, it depends who else is there, you know. Over the years we have many advisors, much depending on what those particular advisors are saying. We, we work in line with that. And uh, yeah, we had one, one amazing advisor, Tula Vinswell, who analyzed our teams 
And that was also exciting. He, he draw graphs of the strengths of the teams. And then we could see approximately who we needed in the team or, and, and what they had too much of. And then we could try to move these teams around. Maybe they could go from paddleboarding to windsurfing or whatever was it. So that, that was good. And they used something called the Thomas method to do this. But I don't even know if, if this is legal any longer to have this type of analysis. But it worked really well. This is maybe seven, eight years ago. And then uh, we have another fantastic uh, advisor now, Thierry Pou, uh, French, living in New Caledonia, right now in Singapore, also helps to gather a team and analyze who should do what. So, uh, you know, we, we, are, we, are, we are drawing on, uh, on support from, from, from people who know their businesses well. And when they aren't here, you get back to the gut feeling and just try to, to also, I think the most important part is just to see, can you work with this person? Maybe they're brilliant, maybe they're the best, but if you can't work with them, then it doesn't help. So that's the other part. Sometimes you may select some that aren't really the best, but you know that together you can be the best. Yeah. So yeah, you have to balance that quite a bit. So a bit of a random balancing out there. And sometimes, of course, that goes wrong, but you know, majorly so it seems to be okay. And speaking about going wrong, is there any sort of main part of either windsurfing or in business where you've thought this is my biggest failure and then how did you come back from that because i know like obviously oh, i've had lots of failures and there's always lots of failures out there and we we use those to set foundation stones for our next success and making sure that we don't make that same mistake again is there anything that stands out for you in that way yeah it's all the small ones i make an enormous amount of small mistakes all the time and you may yeah. you make a small mistake it becomes really big it can be like just not having spent enough time to analyze, for instance, on the plastic part. You know, maybe you haven't seen that this pin box that you had on an Astro that was like an inflatable uh, paddleboard back there in the year 2010. That box maybe had a weak spot that you didn't spend enough time to see that this could potentially break. And you know, when that breaks, only 10,000 boards out in the market have a problem potentially like that. So it's the small details that make the big things. And then everybody struggles, the poor guy who purchased it, the shop, the distributor, us, our supplier. So it just comes to this uh, devil that lives in these details. And, and I guess that's, that's what it is. So what you learn is that the small details are often the most important ones because they don't shine up so much. If there's a big something, something we have to de decide upon, you know, then there is quite some focus into it. But the small decisions, we may not spend enough time on, so it's important to find small decisions are quite critical. I think that's what we have learned. So, uh, and particularly if, if there ever is any staff changing, we need to see often that this staff may not have that experience. So that's why you need to kind of help to guide them to see, well, you know, remember that these plastic parts, the weak, the, the, the thinnest spot is normally the weakest one, wherever it sits. And uh, yeah, so I think it just comes back to that. And I think you'll find the same in racing. You know, it's, it's the small, the small mistakes that makes really the big changes. Yeah. Yeah, there was also what they call, I guess, in sport, the one percenters, making sure that you, everyone's pretty fit and everyone's quite strong, but it's about knowing when yeah. to attack or knowing when to catch that run a little bit harder or knowing when to start your sprint at the end of a race or getting off the line or doing all those different things that I have to think about is the same thing I'm sure in business, just making sure that there's all these big projects obviously going on all the time, but you've got to make sure that all those projects are happening um, at the same 
like level and, and um, of quality that you expect. And that's just something that. So, 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 so then uh, I, I guess you, you are normally the interviewer really on the Bruce cast, but what did you see as the biggest failure in your career? Oh, there's, um, there's many, I guess, um, but they've led to success at the same time. So I guess my, one of my, one of the ones I like to talk about is when I didn't, I was trying to be an Ironman, a surf Ironman for a long time. So I chased that for, since I was probably 14 years old, I, I trained until I was about 21 for seven years. And there was a, an Ironman trial at Chugan Beach. And I, I spoke about it with Corey Hill on one of these with us recently, but we went through a wave and we were one and two and went through, but skis went back to the beach. We went from first and second to 17th and 18th and basically the trial was over. But what happened after that was we were able to go down and do a surf ski race in Sydney, which was called the Fen Cup 3. And that was my first introduction into surf ski paddling. So if I didn't miss out on that trial, there's no way that I would have gone down to that. And then I got 27th or something. I was terrible, but I ended up get, just getting a, an itch for it and I wanted to get better. And then I started doing um, kayak paddling to get better at surf ski. And then I became good at kayaking and made a couple of Australian teams and then um, obviously became quite successful in surf ski. And then the opportunity presented itself from surf ski to, to move into stand up paddleboarding. And like, there's, there's always failures we're going to have, but I think those failures, there's always opportunities in them at the same time. So you've just got to be always looking sideways to see what's out there because something, as I, as you said before, when you saw your father paddling that sup for the first time, I'd seen sups for a long time, but that was the only opportunity that I saw in 2015 yeah. when I got my first um, contract. I was like, I just, I have a good feeling about it. So I feel like it's going to go somewhere. I feel like I could, I could be good at that. And now sitting here, like I've won four world titles and I've been lucky enough to travel around the world and meet so many great people and, and work with someone like you. It's been an incredible experience, but yeah, I've definitely made some, made some big mistakes and, but at the same time, it's, it's led to new opportunities. Yeah, it's always, it's always. And I, I think that that's the cool thing, you know, whenever you make a mistake, you try to figure out how can I maximize the learnings from it and share it and what have you. So, and I think that's also the, 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 the mindset to have. Uh, we are always taught, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Okay, we are still afraid to make mistakes, but every time we make them, uh, we shouldn't be afraid of utilizing them for something good onwards. So, and, and, what, and speaking good. of mistakes, what would be your biggest success? Ah, uh, biggest success. I, I, I think there hasn't really been any big success other than uh, finding very good people uh, to to work with. And I think that's the success I had somehow, you know, finding you, finding Karma, finding Zane, finding Daniel, finding Fiona, uh, finding Somni, you know, just amazing, finding Ollie. Uh, I think that's where the success is, that you are able to connect with these people that are really, truly uh, wanting to move forward. I, I guess that's where, where, where we are, that's the whole arrangement, really. Yeah, you're so, really trying to find uh, what they say. Uh, what's that saying? Um, you you are the product of your environment and the people that surround yeah. you. If they're if they're willing yeah. to to reach success and they're reaching forward, that's what yeah. you're going to become as well. And that's something that I've tried to do in trying to 
to surround myself with successful people because I know that they're going to give me the passion and the desire to, to push forward and, and to do different things. Um, when you're, when you're looking at um, potentially talking, you're talking about like sponsoring different athletes like Connor and Zane and Daniel and Sonny and Fiona, and you've had a lot of these guys on for a long time. Like you're very loyal. How, how do you look to those people and, and how do you find them, especially in like the sponsorship arrangements? Like what, what are you looking for in an athlete? Like obviously you said before winning is good, but also being, um, obviously good at your ideas yeah. and being able to innovate and then being good off the field as well. What, what would you say to that young athlete out there who is looking to get sponsored? What would you say to them? Wow. Yeah. Good question. So uh, I guess, first of all, whatever one kind of wants to look onwards to is, is to figure out what's the reason why you are wanting to take the path or what, why you want to get towards the path of say paddleboarding. And uh, if you're able to share that really clearly with those you want support from, that'd be helpful. I mean, some people want to say, well, I want to be the world champion. Other wants to enjoy it. Some people want to maybe, maybe they're good at developing stuff. They just need to clarify really what, how do I want to go about stuff? We had uh, over the years, we, we worked with an amazing rider for many, many years. He became world champion times over. And uh, he migrated to another brand. Um. <laughs> yeah, so, so he migrated to another brand within our group. And I, I tried to figure out you know, what was going on. Because you know what he was getting a month was you know more than what he would get uh, in, in our other brand, and the answer was clear. He said that you know I hadn't really brought in I hadn't been brought in to do development as much as I had wanted to. I'd expected to be invited to come and do more work in the workshop, design more stuff, and you know I didn't know that that's what he wanted. So it is important that one is clear about what the relation is all about, what you want to do, what's the connection. And then, you know, when that comes along, then, then you can see, well, does the person fit there? Okay, we need a world champion, you know, we need someone to be helped to develop. We need a media icon who can go out and do social media wonderfully, you know, how does it all fit? Or maybe it's like a wave rider. You can imagine Benoit Carpentier just go out and, you know, win the world championships, just like that. So it depends really on want to share the dream and, uh, and the talent that one thinks lives within one. And then we can see how we can put that together. That's why we call it the dream team. We dream it up and put it together. Yeah, it was a really good story. Um, I actually did uh, one of these bootcasts with Daniel Sawyer and his brother Bruno, and they both spoke about that they both, all they wanted was to be as part of the dream team. And I think you've created an amazing concept there because that was their initial goal that's all they wanted to achieve and to have that as their goal it must have been it's just such an incredible and like to have someone like even me like I, I wanted to be part of that dream team because I saw it as the best team in the world and if I wanted to be able to to prove myself I had to be a part of that team and and now I guess I'm lucky enough to be here because I I have been quite persistent I remember our first emails and I was I remember emailing you when I first left Gulliver and I was like I'm I, I can do this I'm going to be like world champion I'm going to be able to do this like I want to go to PPG. Can you help me? And I think our initial deal was half a board. I bought half the board and I paid for the board to go to the States, but then you gave me half the other part of the board. 
And I went to VPG and I got top 10 with like not really much training. And you were like, maybe I should give, give you a chance. And then it was a, I think Matt Noddy did really well that year as well. And you were going to just not take me, but I, I emailed you again and I was like, no, I have to be on this team. I have to do this. I want to be there. And um, I ended up getting you on a technicality actually, because we agreed on email, but not on contract. And you said, yeah, okay, let's, um, we'll go ahead. I've still got the email and I was one of my biggest wins. Because I wouldn't be here where I am today if I didn't, if I wasn't persistent. So that's something that I guess any of those kids out there or anyone listening, it's all about persistence. Yep. Think about when Sven went to Paris. Exactly. <laughs> um, is is there anything you'd like to, to add um, towards the end of this now? Like, did you want to send a message to uh, the Kasup community or to the paddling community out there about like what's going on at the moment and and how they should be thinking and what they should be doing to, to get through this crisis? Well, I, I, I believe that there are a lot of uh, people and entities who are sharing it really very well. And uh, I, I guess really the most important thing, which yeah, probably lives within most of the families around here is to take especially care of, uh, of those who may have a little bit of uh, rugged health maybe a friend or a family member, you know, elderly, just figure out how to, uh, how to make sure that they are as isolated as they can, but still stay in touch with them in the ways possible. I, I, I believe that's probably the most useful thing we can do right now on, on, on a personal level. And uh, just be positive because, you know, even if you, even if you attract a disease, you know, it depends how you take on that too. If you have a positive mindset and people around you are, are supporting you, I don't know what percentage it makes, but it makes a huge difference if you're truly supported. I, I think that's, that's, that's vital to just create a positive engagement these days and, uh, and share that with those who, who are on the you know, little bit uh, tough side of life, whatever it happens to be. So, yeah. That's, Be strong. Have a strong oh, mind, yeah. glass half full, be positive. I think that comes down oh, yeah. to most things in life. You've got to be able to, to see the end. Like you're talking about the moment, uh, looking down the line, it's going to be really positive at the end. And I think yeah. even for the stand-up races out there at the moment that I sort of associate with, or with any other ocean sports or with business owners that I've been speaking to, the, the common theme is like it is going to be good after this. We're going to, we've got a time where we can be more calm. We can be a bit more relaxed. We can focus on building different foundation blocks for what's coming and what's going to be next. And I think there's going to be a really big boom in leisure and activity once we get through this, because people are starting to probably realize what is really, truly important for them. Like is, is going to work, um, I don't know, six till 10 at night and not seeing your family. Is that really important or is taking that trip that you're supposed to have with your kids? Is that more important? We'll go and we'll go and paddle on the lake or we'll go to this event that we weren't, we didn't go to last year because we focus on our other priorities. I think, I actually think there's going to be a really big boom after this and I'm really excited to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also have to say that the you know, economy and money is, is very much overrated. I think we, we start to learn that too. Um, I, I'm sitting here kind of trying to run a business and the economy has something to I'm not pro-economy. I, mean, I, I would like to say GTBs, uh, I would like to say economists actually scale down, not grow up. And an economist would say I'm crazy, but I think it's possible if it could be done in the right way and just minimize impacts. 
So yeah, it's a it's a double-edged sword there. But in 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 a way, I think we learn now that actually contraction also could work. And I think it would be healthy if we started the contraction every year, not not seven or ten percent, but maybe you know half a percent contraction every year. Maybe you know things will be much more easy in the future. Fifty years from now, if that happens instead of the way it goes now, we will probably still be around. Yeah, well, who knows? Um, it's like a it's a weird world we live in at the moment, and we're just trying to all make it up as we go. As you said earlier, we're just um, as like I, I always say to people, like people look sometimes look at me and say, oh, like you know what you're doing, you're just focused, you're trying to work things out. It's like even with this booth cast, like it was just an, an idea I had in, in an afternoon, and I was like, oh, I might just start talking to people. That'd be fun because I've got nothing else to do, and then I've been able to chat to so many amazing people and create create stronger relationships. I think with my community and and the SUP community, the ocean paddling community. And there's just so many great things that we can constantly be doing. And it's great to see Starboard obviously making an, an effort to help with the, the carbon neutral stuff, to making sure that they're not making an impact on the environment and educating others to do the same. You're, you're a real leader in not only ocean sports and the industry there, but obviously in the collective business community, I think people would look to Starboard and go, hang on, like maybe we can do this as well. So if, if people want to find out more about Starboard and um, Starboard Blue and all these different concepts, where can they go? Right, so there is then Starboard Blue, you'll find it, if you go to the website, there'll be like a uh, environmental, or an environment, it, it will say on the website. I think there's also Starboard Blue Facebook. But yeah, you want, we, we, we really try to expand and explore further in that field. And there's a lot of cool themes in there, we also uh, connected to quite a few documentaries. And some of these documentaries changed my life. I mean, I, I watched them a couple of years ago and I said, wow, I really like that. And then I just changed a lot of things in my life. So, so I, I love that documentary uh, section. And then there's a lot of stories about what our eco crew is doing, what the writers are doing in eco uh, terms. And, uh, and uh, you know, being, being from Norway, one of our, uh, one of our uh, targets and ambitions is that the park that we are developing in, in, in Myanmar, which also will be expanding to other, yeah, other mangrove areas, could be down to Africa even. We want for this uh, consortium to actually mitigate about 50 million tons CO2 annually, which is the same as the total carbon footprint of uh, Norway. So, you know, these things we can do. It's not that a big thing. We can do it. And it's the same in the plastic uh, area, you know, it's like, what happens today? It, it is crazy. We keep on dumping this stuff out there and then uh, we sit and do some politics and the big companies explain this and that. And, you know, it's like, and they talk about recycling and that they can recycle it, but they don't do it. It's like, we, the, the ocean is losing a lot of time because we are not rising after the challenge. People are getting away with stuff, they shouldn't. Through Starboard, we will have to get people on board, voice our opinions, and in the future, maybe we can really create a, a strong groundswell and get paddleboarders on board. As you know, we are the ones that are really there standing up on the ocean, if you stand for the ocean. And we, we, we really should go if it's checking on the community level, on, on the small businesses we know, the restaurants, our friends. Now we can do it if you want to. Maybe we become popular. It is a shift if you're unpopular, if you can just help to save the future a little bit. 20 years later, the others will understand why we're doing this stuff. We just have to kind of accelerate it. So 
yeah, join, join that community in any way you can. And we had this amazing girl called Tasmin and another girl called Tip that are working on this full time. So if you, if you send a little mail to, I think there's an address there. Uh, if you ask my yes, for ways to interact, whatever. We, we need more stuff happening as uh, here in Thailand and, and in most of Asia, ocean pollution is really very serious. It's not like the coastline in Perth. It's not like the coastline in the Mediterranean. It's something very different. <laughs> we yes, live this stuff. You've been to Parker, you know what it is. And you know, that ocean will be shared. So in, in, in just a hundred years, you will have these small pieces. They're not microplastics. I mean, you know, they're much smaller than that. It's just a suit that sits around the river. We don't know how this goes. When, 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 your, when your daughters or sons are going to have their babies, we just don't know what they're going to look like if we keep on you know, working like what they're doing now. So, so it's, it's important to, to take it serious. And when people kind of laugh at you and think you're crazy, you say, fine. Never mind, we understand that you are, you haven't quite figured out what actually happens here. So that is, that is something we really, uh, really burn for and we, we go out in any way we can to, to, to work with different companies. We, we managed to sign an MOU with the, the largest polluter in uh, Southeast Asia. It's a wonderful company. They are actually really pro-circular economy. Do a lot of good stuff, but they also uh, meet, they also what do you call it? They have an emission of 24 million ton CO2 through the cement operation. 24 million ton is the same as half of Norway's total emission. So you can imagine how large that is. Yeah. And uh, we need to work with them because we could say you are bad, but they aren't. They're just producing cement. We all need cement to build something. Hundreds of cement. Probably you also may have a cement house, so it's normal, right? Uh, we need yeah, to find ways. but there's always everything that we use is always going to be a consequence. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we're making better social um, choices all the time. Yeah. That's something that you've been able to inspire me to do. Yeah. So here, here comes the simple thing. You know, if you if you produce a ton of cement, you need to plant one tree because one tree takes on one ton CO two, and one ton of cement production is also putting up one ton of CO two into the atmosphere. So simple constellations, and uh, these are things we want to work with them on, plus other schemes like we have this educational program for kids, uh, Lindsay Hawking in, in, in the UK, uh, together with uh, Sarah Steensland, living on a boat in Malaysia, have been developing a 260-page curriculum for, for kids on alignment education. We try to launch that out and together with uh, this company here in Thailand, you know, the educated kids here. And we just try any way we can to do something because we look around and you know, I just, I maybe I live in a bubble, but I, I just can't see us humans taking the current situation serious. It, yeah. It's like so much for me. I, 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 I think, uh, I think what I see can't be true. It seems like I'm living in a lot of zombies. So, yeah. again, it can't, I'm mad at that reality. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's actually been quite interesting, obviously, learning from you over the past five years that we've worked together. And I remember coming over to Thailand for the first time, I think it must have been 2016. And I was like, this guy's just crazy. Like, he's like a, he's, he's vegan, no one eats, no one eats um, meat in the office. 
Um, we're not allowed to pollute. I've got to drink, take heat cups everywhere. But if I take a water bottle to the office, I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing. And but you're, you're but you're a leader in this, and you're actually eventually people will start to see this, and you're sort of I guess at the forefront of this with a lot of different people out there in society. But you're you're forcing change, like even for someone like me who probably didn't have that opinion a few years ago. You start, I'm starting to see the differences that you're making um, day to day, which are conscious decisions that I can just easily implement into my situation at home. So, so uh, thanks for that. But you know, so we are um, the latecomers to the party. I mean, we we, we just and I, I I'm very shy and, and 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 sad to see how slow I was in figuring this out. I mean, if you look at a company like Patagonia. They've been talking about this for 20, 25 years. And you know, there's so much information out there and so many people, so many organizations doing so much great stuff but, and the people have been stopping eating meat since a long time. I just didn't figure it out. I've been sitting there like a blind person and, uh, and now finally I figured out that, well, you know, maybe the reality is different from what I thought it was. And yes, yeah, so, so uh, we are definitely very late comers here. And uh, we just try to hang in there and, and, and catch up with some, some of those guys who figured it out a very long time ago. Even, even I think many of our parents were, were, were figuring this out before us, really. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I guess you got that, that general business cycle. You got the early adopters, the late adopters, and the, yeah. the guys who come much later than that. And I'm probably one of those guys who comes much later than that. But I'm definitely... Uh, learning and, and constantly trying to, to be better and, and listening to people like yourself and seeing other obviously movers and shakers out there in the community who are making these type of things happen so um yeah it's, it's all about just listening to those people who are making those smart decisions and just doing your daily things that you could do better and i think that's something that I, that's all i'm trying to focus on at the moment but i know i can do more um so going forward uh, what's what's the plan for you and starboard the rest of this year are you, are you Batting down the hatches, are you going to push things forward? Um, but what's the plan? Yeah, so we are, um, we have uh, a plan coming on in the end of the month, end of April. Then we've been consolidating the information from the different countries to see approximately how uh, the temperature is there. Uh, do, we have, uh, do we have lockdowns continuing? or where are we opening up and then we need to see approximately when we do different launches for what different products so that's on the one side for for development uh, we are full on uh, as you know you were here you know we are further ahead than we have been so yeah. so that's good so we, we just want to to be ahead of the game and and and, and make very well informed decisions coming then uh, in uh, in the end of april and then follow the, the development onwards and just try to be cutting edge in whatever we do. Uh, have to listen a lot because, you know, we are sitting here and, uh, you know, in the other, on the other side, somebody's walking in a shop door. Between these two spaces, there's a lot of action. There is a shop, there's a distributor, and, you know, there's factories. So we need to find a way where, where, where we are making the right calls here so nobody gets stuck with 100 boards in their shop or in the warehouse at the same time making sure that you know you can write on some new stuff we don't want for you to use next year stuff even you know that that's that's not fair either because it's very hard to get that new stuff out there 
I know so, I work very yeah. hard. Like you get lots of emails from me <laughs> trying to get new stuff all the time. So I'm sure you get yeah. sick of that, but you know what I'm like. So you just, it is what it is. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm much like you there. We, 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 we need to, uh, we need to just be uh, smart about how nobody suffers uh, with all the stuff sitting here and there when, uh, when this shut down for a while. I think uh, we come to some good conclusions on that part. Uh, what else happens in the year? Uh, this is probably the highest action year we'll ever have. We have, have uh, we are launching quite a few new uh, projects that I'm not allowed to talk about at this moment, but some of them are super exciting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> or if we're invited maybe next year to have a small cast, we can go into the details on that. Yeah. So yeah, thank thank you very much for for uh, for having been hosting uh, this time. You you are uh, a total uh, diamond out there, Michael. You are. Uh, it's really strange. You know, you're you're a writer. You are a developer. You are a winner, and you're such a good team player together with all the rest of the team and everybody in the office. Respect everything you do. So do our distributor, and now we are sitting here. So thank you. Well, thank you, Sven. I really appreciate your time today. It's uh, it's really good to hear from you, and uh, I really enjoy having our conversation. So it's nice to nice to be able to tie you down for a couple of hours and have a chat because I know that's been that was I think that was our third or fourth arrangement that we had to set this meeting up. So I know. <laughs> Sorry. It was good to it was good to nail you down today. So I really appreciate your time. Um, to everybody out there who has been watching the Boothcast, I really do appreciate all the nice feedback I've been getting. It's been an incredible experience over the past six weeks or so, um, getting these cool stories out there. If you would like to um, check out any of my uh, Boothcasts, you can go to Michael Booth on Facebook, and there's a section there in Boothcast, which you can watch all of these back. You can also find Boothcast on any of your favorite channels, Spotify, iTunes, um, and we'll be able to listen to these podcasts when you're driving at home or whatever you'd like to do. There's also a section above me in, uh, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, there's a, a link where you can actually support the podcast if you would like to do that, which will help me get some more equipment to be able to, to, be able to do this more and more. So um, thank you and thank you, Sven, for all your time today. Thank you. Thank you all.